welcome to Grace Toronto, wherever you are in your journey of faith. We're so glad that you're here with us here today. We now come to the time in our service where we commit our attention to the reading of God's Word and the preaching of God's Word. If you have your bulletins here today, you'll see that our passage is from John chapter 4. If you'd like a Bible, a hard copy Bible to read from, uh, we have some out in the front lobby. Feel free to take one. That's our gift to you. Today, we are finishing up our last sermon for the Lent series that we have, and uh, the series is about encounters with Jesus, and to help us with God's reading today, we have Shen. Today's scripture reading is taken from John chapter 4, verses 1 to 29. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? 
So the woman left her water jar, went away into town, and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thank you, Shen, for reading. Would you please bow with me as we pray? God, we thank you for this word. And as we turn to it now and drink from it, would the words find place in our heart, satisfy our hearts, and delight our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts, O Lord, be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week, last week, Dan shared about Paul Henderson, a famous and accomplished Canadian hockey player, who following some of his greatest achievements of his career, looked back and wondered, there's got to be more. I wonder, looking back at your life, looking back at all that you've accomplished, have you ever wondered, there's got to be more? Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor observed that there's a general malaise that marks our culture. The average Canadian has more power at their disposal than any other era. We have more opportunities than those before us. In our fingertips, we have more than enough to satisfy us for a lifetime, yet despite our resources, despite our opportunities, despite our achievements and accomplishments, we find ourselves wondering, is there more? Longing for more, thirsting for more, pining for more. We say to ourselves, there's got to be more. Our passage today, John 4, brings us good news today. As it brings us face to face with the one who has more than this world can offer. Inviting us to sip from the stream of living water, the streams of living water. John 4 will show us that Jesus is the gracious giver of living water. So drink from him. We're going to explore this idea and this truth by considering two points today. Firstly, the living water we want. And secondly, the way of the living water. Two points. The living water we want and the way of the living water. Let's look at the first point. The living water we want. As we look at John 4, we'll see from this unique encounter that what our hearts really want is living water. Our encounter with Jesus takes place in a small town of Samaria. In the first few verses of our passage, it's revealed that Jesus was in Judea just days earlier. We're not exactly sure why Jesus left or what the problem exactly was, but it had something to do with the religious elites of the day, the Pharisees, taking an overly curious interest in Jesus' ministry. Some believe the result, uh, some believe that the, 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 the Pharisees were trying to spread division between Jesus and John the Baptist mainly because Jesus' ministry was starting to outpace John the Baptist's. Regardless of reason, the result was simple. Jesus retreated from Judea to Galilee. And on route, on route, we see our passage say that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, in verse 4, you might have noticed the word had. Jesus had to go through Samaria. This is strange, actually. This is strange because there's actually multiple routes to Galilee that could avoid Samaria. Commentators do know that cutting through Samaria is the fastest route, but commentators also know that the serious Jew wanted nothing to do with Samaria. Why, you might ask? 
According to D.A. Carson, who is a scholar, Samaritans were regarded as quote-unquote racial half-breeds and political rebels. Traders who during the Assyrian domination in 722 BC gave up the pure, uh, pure worship of Yahweh for the Socratic mixed religion of paganism and Judaism. The result was that the Jews had worship at one mountain. They worshiped God in Mount Zion, while the Samaritans worshiped at Mount Gerizim. To get a sense of the tension here between the Jews and Samaritans, I want you to imagine, just close your, close your eyes and imagine you're in 1940s America. There's a school for the whites and a school for the blacks, a church for the whites and a church for the blacks, a fountain labeled whites only and another fountain labeled colored only. This is the kind of tension and division we're seeing between the Jews and Samaria. They lived in the same empire, but it was a segregated empire. Geographical convenience might have been one reason that Jesus wanted to go through Samaria, but given the tensions and the divisions of their day, most scholars think there's a deeper motivator. Do you know what that is? One word, grace. Grace. For who, you might ask? For six and seven tells us who. For a woman from Samaria. In verse six, we see it's the sixth hour. Feet dusty, brow sweaty, Jesus is found sitting alone next to Jacob's well, and he waits for his friends. Yet out of nowhere, we see in verse seven, a woman from Samaria comes to draw water. Her timing is strange, as Graham mentioned earlier. The sixth hour means noon, and most women in that day drew water in either the morning or the evening. Her behavior is suspect. Her behavior suggests that she is an outcast, one who has been shunned by her society, and we don't find out why until later into our passage. Why is it? She's an adulterer, a serial adulterer. Yet ever gracious, and eager to engage, Jesus scandalously speaks to her. Give me a drink, he says to her. The scandal of Jesus' interaction is actually multifaceted. See, it's, it's one thing to socialize with a Samaritan. It's another thing to socialize with a sinful Samaritan. But it's even more scandalous to socialize with a sinful Samaritan woman. Notice how John points out in our text the woman's gender repeatedly in verse 7, 9, 11, and 27. He wants us to pay attention to this detail. Why? Because it highlights Jesus' grace even more. See, according to commentators, if you were to open up the ESV study Bible, for example, you'll see in the notes that talking to a woman publicly was a social taboo in Jesus' day. Men and women back then were not regarded as equally valuable in that day. I know this sounds wildly offensive today, and it is. It's chauvinistic and it is sexist. But far from being a reason to dismiss Christianity, Jesus gives us a reason here to be surprised by Christianity. Jesus will be no hostage to the cultural norms of his day. He will not let this woman be a subject to the sexism of his day. Rather, giving her her dignity and showing her that she's of great value, Jesus engages her in hopes of pouring out his grace on her. 
What we'll see is that he wants to give her living water. Notice how she responds, though. How is it that you, a Jew, asks me for a drink? A woman of Samaria. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She knows her social boundaries. So you can kind of hear the hostility in her voice. Yet, returning hospitality for her hostility, Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. Inviting her to consider his living water, Jesus invites us to consider our longing for living water. What is living water? Well, in John, living water has two meanings. In the Greek, it's a pun, a play on words. On one hand, the phrase literally means a spring of water. Imagine a ribbon of crystal clear water pouring out crisp, clean water that would satisfy your lips. That if your lips touch it, you go like, ah, thirst-quenching water. That's living water. But on the other hand, living water has a metaphorical meaning too, a meaning that doesn't get uncovered until much later in John specifically John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39. If you have your Bibles, just flip over to John 7, 37 to 39, and what you'll see here is Jesus say, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Not to be mistaken with something, John helps us see that the living water of John 4 is a soul-satisfying someone. It's the Spirit of the living God. The Holy Spirit of God, Jesus' Spirit, poured out for you shared with you when you believe. In sharing with us his living water, Jesus is going to help us see today that the longing beneath our longing, our human longings, is a deeper longing for God. And even more specifically, a longing to belong to God. In response to Jesus' claim in verse 10, the woman you see here is confused, but she's also curious. And so intrigued and interested, she investigates, sir, you don't have anything to draw water with. You don't have a bucket, bro, in other words. No pail, no jar to fill up. Where do you get this living water? Are you better than Jacob? Are you greater than Jacob who gave us this well and his sons who drank from it? Jesus' answer, well, he avoids answering directly. The obvious answer As we know, yes, he is greater than Jacob. He's the God of Jacob. But he doesn't say that right away. Why? Because graciously, he wants to draw out further what we really need to know and want. Look at Jesus' response. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Tempting her, presenting to her living water, and then saying that it leads to eternal life, he draws her in even more. I wonder, have you ever sat 
and stopped and wondered, what's eternal life? What does God mean when He says eternal life? Some of you might think literally that eternal life is like life that never ends, hyped up on like an energizer bunny battery that just goes on and on and on and on forever and ever. You wouldn't be wrong to think that. But is that all? No. No, it goes much deeper than that. Or rather, it goes higher. In John 17, verse 3, in the garden, Jesus prays to God the Father, and in his prayer, he actually defines what eternal life is. Hear what Jesus says. This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. According to Jesus, eternal life isn't just life forever, period. No, it's life forever with God, a life that starts now and goes into eternity, never-ending, never-changing, sweetly satisfying, soul-satiating, thirst-quenching, forever-enduring friendship with God, who is God the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's eternal life. And the Spirit's role? His role is to mediate that relationship with God. It never crossed this woman's mind that her physical thirst that day was actually a metaphor for the spiritual thirst that her soul felt every day. Underneath her thirst was a yearning to drink from the Spirit of God who would bring her into a personal relationship with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Grace Toronto, what is actually physical points to something spiritual. To use C.S. Lewis's illustrations, like sunbeams meant to be traced back to the sun, so our desires in this life were meant to point us back to the Son of God and the Father who is God and the Spirit who is God. So applications. Let's ask ourselves an honest question. What are you longing for in this life? If you're investigating the faith, I want to say something to you. Our culture has lied to you. The culture says that God has nothing to offer you. Let me ask you instead, what has the culture offered you instead? Power, place, rank, riches, intimacy, security? Chances are you drank from these wells, you've sipped from their streams, yet here you are today, disillusioned, feeling dry, still looking for more. Power, place, rank, riches, intimacy, and security, these things were never meant to be in itself, an end in itself. They were meant to point you to your soul's desire for something greater, for someone greater. It's meant to point you to God. Your desire for power is actually your soul's desire for an opportunity to, to bask in the power of God's grace. Your desire for place in this world, rank in this world, is actually a desire to be placed before God's glorious face. Your desire for intimacy 
Your desire for intimacy is a desire to rest in God's land where you can intimately hold his hand in heaven one day. Like billboards for our souls, our desires for more point us to God. It points us to the brilliant shore where living water can be found. Where the all-surpassing, all-satisfying God himself can be found. That's what your desires reveal. And so look at your desires and consider where they're pointing you to. As we summarize this point, the living water we want, our text shows us that what we ultimately want in this life is God. At this time, you might wonder, well, how do I get this living water? What do I have to do to get this living water? How do I get this soul-satisfying, intimate relationship with God? This leads us to our second point, the way of the living water. In order to receive this living water, this relationship with God, Jesus shows us that what we need to do is to address something within, namely our sin. That's step one. Sir, give me this water, the woman says, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here again. Jesus responds, go call your husband and come here. Remember, this is the woman's first time meeting Jesus. And so she cautiously responds, I don't have a husband. True, Jesus says. It's because you've had five husbands and the one you're with right now ain't your husband. (laughs) That's jarring, isn't it? What's going on here? Well, drawing out the very thing that keeps her from embracing God Jesus confronts her secret sin, and in turn, he confronts our sin. Before the woman can embrace God, she needs to let go of her false gods. Like any respectable relationship, God will not be one of her many lovers. He will not be one of our many lovers. And so he confronts her sin. And if you want to one day find yourself in a relationship with him or you want a relationship with him, that is beautiful, Christians. You need to confront your sin. Underneath this woman's adultery is idolatry. And idolatry is any time you take something less than God and elevate it above God. An idol is anything that you love more than God. It's the very thing you turn to in hopes to getting from it what only God can give you. In this woman's case, her false god could have been either intimacy or security. We don't exactly know what it is, but we know this. Jesus sees it, and he says, we, we need to deal with it. As I'm looking at you, I see many eyes diverting away. And I wonder if it's because you don't like the topic of sin. You're not alone here. This woman actually in verse 19 doesn't either. Notice how she deflects and avoids. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet, she says. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Jews worshipped on that one. Who's right? Loose paraphrase. How many of us try to avoid the topic of sin by deflecting with other questions? I know I have. 
Perceiving that Jesus is more than a teacher, this woman is also clearly uncomfortable with the topic, and so she changes the topic. In fact, she picks the most contentious theological question for debate. And what's really interesting here is that Jesus doesn't take a Bible and bash her over the skull with it. No, he gently engages. He gently engages, but he will not be deflected. Rather, he takes her deflection and uses it as a mean for reflection on the issue we need to face within. Look at the text. Believe me, he says, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or that mountain will you worship the Father. For, where, for you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. In other words, salvation is from the line of the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. God is spirit, verse 24 says, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. See how Jesus deals very quickly with her diversion but then flips the conversation back to the issue at hand and saying, it's not on this mountain or that mountain you worship God, but in spirit and truth, Jesus forces us to think of our relationship with God in a whole new way. Rather than thinking about external appearances and outward practices, Jesus wants us to see that what God cares most about is what's in your heart. And spirit and truth is a technical Greek phrase meant to convey one singular idea, that true worship, true relationship with God is a matter of the heart. Internal versus external. Inward versus outward. At the heart of the Jewish-Samaritan debate was a focus on outward acts of worship. This missed the heart of truly spiritual worship that God cared most about. And Jesus... Jesus' answer brought the topic back to sin when he said it's not some place that defines your worship. It's not your ceremonies. It's not even your liturgies. It's what's inside your heart. True worship is defined by what you love, who you love, who you treasure, who you delight in. That's what marks truly spiritual worship. It's not enough to say, you love me with your words, Jesus says. In other words, you actually have to love me in your heart. And this is why he confronts her idols. This is why he confronts her sin. Because in her heart is something that is saying to God, I don't actually love you. God sees what we love and who we love. And if it's an idol that we've placed over him, it's not good enough. We need to deal with it. So step one in the way of the living water is to confront your sin. And so let's walk that step together. Let's be honest about our sin. If you're investigating a faith, what idols, awkward question, what idols have you set up over God? What idols keep you from entering into a personal relationship with God? What idols are robbing you of your opportunity to experience the never-ending joy of walking with God? You might think that you don't have an idol, but Pulitzer Prize winner David Foster Wallace once observed, there is no such thing as worshiping. Everybody worships something. In other words, everybody has an idol. The only option, the only choice that we get is what we worship, what we idolize.
Worship money, and you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly, he goes on to say. Everybody worships something. The only choice is what we get to worship. What are you worshiping? Christians, let me ask you, who are you worshiping today? One of the things that upsets Christians the most is how elusive joy can feel in the relationship with God. I wonder if you felt this way before. I know I have. You call yourself a Christian, and looking at your own life, you wonder, where's my joy? I read my Bible, I pray, I go to small group, but I don't feel joy. Where's the soul-satisfying joy, the heartwarming joy I was promised in Christ? It's a serious struggle. There are many possible reasons for this, but one of the simplest reasons that I've noticed whenever I meet with folks in our church to talk about this is that if we're honest, most of us are not as faithful to God as we actually make ourselves out to be. Most of us, most of you, splash in secret puddles of sin. Pairing other drinks with God, many of us have secret stashes of water from wells that we like to sip from when the lights are down and nobody's around. For many of the men I meet with in this church, I hear from you that this well is called a broken well of sex and pornography. For others, it might be greed. It might be a well called power. It might be a well called control. A well called comfort. For the youth, this well tends to be a well called approval. Some of us have taken some bad things and elevated them above God. Others of us might have taken good things, like family and friends, and elevated them above God. The only problem with this is that in either case, it's cheating. It's cheating. One of the reasons we feel that joy is elusive in our Christian walk isn't because God's unfaithful. It's because we've been unfaithful. If joy is elusive because of secret sin, I think your discontentment right now is God's way of saying to you, it's time to confess. It's time to repent. And listen, listen, if you think it's too late to repent, or that you've gone too far or sinned beyond God's grace, that there's no forgiveness, I want you to think again. Because God is serious about your joy in Him, so serious that He'll die for your sin and your relationship with Him. Did you notice that in John 4, there's a couple details here that John writes down and tries to draw attention to? For example, that Jesus is wearied and tired. Jesus is thirsty and all alone at the sixth hour. Did you know that John 4 isn't the only place where Jesus is recorded as this? As being wearied and tired, thirsty, and all alone at the sixth hour? Guess where we see it? John 19, at a place called Golgotha, 
when Jesus was condemned to die for your sin and my sin. In John 19, the timestamp for Jesus' death was the sixth hour, noon. With no disciples around him, no friends to support him, Jesus was nailed to a cross, separated from God in order to bear the wrath of God. Do you know what Jesus said as he bore God's wrath and curse for us? Two words. I thirst. John 19, verse 28. I thirst. Left alone so we might never be alone thirsting so we might never, no longer have to thirst. Jesus was condemned at the sixth hour so we might embrace him and be embraced by him this hour. No matter how big or small you think you've sinned, today is a day that you can turn back to him. And so I plead with you, repent, turn back to him. Step one in the way of the living water is to confront your sin. So confront your sin. Repent from your sin. Turn back to him. And when you've done that, go to step two. Drink from him. Drink from him. Notice how the story ends. Expressing her longing for Christ in verse 25, Jesus tells her plainly, I am Christ. I who speak to you am he. And drinking in his words, taking him at his words, the result is a profound act of symbolism. That jar she came in with, she sets it aside. And she runs to town saying, come, come and see the one I have found. Can this be the Christ? It's a rhetorical question. It is the Christ. The jar represented her thirst, and having encountered Christ, she went from thirsty to satisfied. And what's even more amazing is that it's not just her, actually. In verse 39 to 41, which isn't in your bulletins, we see the townspeople go from thirsty to satisfied. I'm going to read verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, and urging him to stay with them two more days, many more became believers because of his word. To drink from Christ means we embrace Christ, treasure Christ, delight in Christ, believe in Christ. If you're wondering how can we embrace, treasure, delight, and believe in Christ when we can't see Him, hear Him, or feel Him, I want you to know that God left you a collection, a book for you, a collection of letters for you, letters that allow you to see Him hear him, and even feel him. The Bible is God's primary way of giving us water to drink from. It's his way of allowing us to drink from him today. If you don't have a Bible, I've stacked a bunch of blue ones out at the front. You take a copy and you bring it home and you read it. Because in the scriptures, we have God's endless love letters. Letters that tell us about him and letters that tell us even about us. Things we never knew about ourselves. There are letters for the good times and letters for the bad times. Letters that will make you laugh and letters that will make you cry. Letters that will help you live a life that leads to everlasting love and letters that will give you hope. And best of all, letters, letters that will give you joy, unparalleled joy, when the world gives us no reason for joy.
like handwritten letters from a distant lover. All the words of Scripture, every word and every piece of Scripture is given to us so that we might drink from Him and find ourselves fully satisfied in Him. And so, Grace Toronto, don't just confess your sin, don't just repent, run to Him and drink from Him, embrace Him, find yourself soul, your soul satisfied in Him. This is God's gift to you, and this is God's way for you. As we close today, we consider the living water that we want and the way of the living water. And in considering these two points, we saw that Jesus Christ is the gracious giver of living water. May we go to Him and drink from Him only to be eternally satisfied in Him. Let's pray. God, we thank You. We thank You for this Word. And we thank You for the promise of this Word that we can enter a relationship with You and that we can be satisfied with You. God, I pray for the people in this room that they would be able to experience that little by little, day by day, as they long for you and as they pursue you, as they lust for you and search for you and pant over you. Oh, that we as a church would be able to look to you, God, and say with whole hearts in the innermost being, whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? The earth has nothing I desire besides you. Though my heart and my strength may fail me, God, you are my strength and my portion forever. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you. Would we be able to see, taste and see that you are good, God? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. At this time, we have time for one question for Q&A. Uh, I'm going to do my best to answer this as succinctly as possible. We have about... Uh, three questions here. So I'll pick the, the most recent one here. They say here, the question is, is the act of seeking this living water a type of work? Uh, excuse me. Is the act of see seeking this living water a type of work or is it an expression of my faith? Um, it is an expression of your faith uh, in, in one sense. Uh, if you think it's a work that, if, it depends on what you mean by work. If you think that by, by, by pursuing God, you're going to earn God's favor, that, that's not how it works. Uh, but that's because you might be thinking that God's not chasing you. If you realize that in the gospel that it's God primarily extending his grace to you, God chasing you, and you respond to him, and you, you say in response to him, I want to chase after you, uh, it's not a work. It's actually a response. And so I would say that's a work of faith, but not a work of works to earn your salvation. And so I would say it's a work of faith. All right, great. At this point, uh, we're going to move on to our song of reflection. If you have any more questions, feel free to email me at kingsley at gracetron.ca, and we'll have the worship team come on, us, come, up, come on up to lead us in a song. <laughs>